Hi, I'm Mick Kelly, and this is Food Done Right. To me, if you're working in a Michelin star, if you're working for me in a nursing home, the client is still the client. The diner is still the diner, and you give them the best, the very best you can. People have had a really rough time and yes, they're there to, you know, and it's all very serious. They're going to be doing their rehabilitation or whatever. But there's the lighter side as well. The camaraderie, having a bit of fun, getting things off their chest while they're working away. It's fabulous. Growing food completely changed the course of history. Somewhere along the way, we've become entirely removed from where our food comes from. But if we grow food, reconnect and care about our food, we can change the future's course. In 2013, public health experts and a non-profit group in Philadelphia delivered nutritious meals to people with a range of chronic diseases. Over a one-year period, their healthcare costs plummeted by $12,000 compared to a control group. While insurance pays for expensive hospital visits, it doesn't pay for the food that could keep people out of hospital in the first place. It's one typically dysfunctional example of food done wrong. How's it going there, Mick? How are you doing, Baz? Food done awesome. wrong doesn't sound quite right there, I'm afraid. It doesn't sound quite right, but we, we thought we'd have to mix it up just for this, this, this our last episode of this series. Um, so, Kamir, as an honest, hardworking taxpayer, would you support public spending on free meals rather than more beds or better pay for frontline healthcare workers? Um, not to put you on the spot or anything, but where, where, where would you stand on a contentious policy issue like that? Well, I don't know about the honest, hardworking taxpayer, for one thing, <laughs> but I certainly would support more public spending on proper food in hospitals. Um and I think uh, where where I'm set up actually here um, in Grow HQ today, um, I can actually see the hospital across the road from us. So we've the biggest biggest hospital in the southeast here, um, over the road from us, and um, obviously it's. Uh, I think everybody has a kind of like a hospital food story, really, don't they? But I unfortunately spent a night in A and E. Um, recently nothing nothing too serious but um, I was there for about 24 hours and I got two meals both of which were toast um, you know standard sliced white pan um, pat of butter and you know the little chivers jams um, and uh, that was about the height of it and so I think um, the, the lack of nutrition and um good food that we have in the hospital system is like it's just such a serious issue and it seems to me an obvious thing that um, <clears throat> if you want to support people to get better that you have to start with food and um, you know at a time when you really need good nutritious food when you're when you're sick that's you know unfortunately it's it's very rarely available in the hospital system and so I think it's a uh, it's it's as you say an example of of food done wrong, unfortunately. Mm. And we've talked a lot throughout the series about how problems with the food that we eat in in all different walks of life they they really reflect our overall culture around food. That it mm. can be it's quite utilitarian in in, in many ways, um, and obviously we're we're quite detached from its its origins and and its quality and uh, and all of the, the sort of the broader benefits that that I can bring. Um, I think that really hits home in a hospital setting, just as you said, you know, a lot of white bread and um, jam and, you know, soggy chips and jelly and ice cream. Um, 
Our first guest today uh, is Joyce Timmons, whose you know work went viral a couple of years ago for being essentially the opposite of that. Uh, can you tell us a bit yeah. about her? Well, it, it, I think it says a lot that that just you know a chef doing good food in a hospital went viral give, gives you a sense of how unusual it is, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but Joyce is a really interesting lady. She, um, I think, I think we've had a few examples in the series. Um, of chefs that moved into different things. And I think there's definitely, you know, maybe there's another series in in the idea of of why that is. I think chefs kind of um, in such a, it's such a um, high stress, difficult environment to work in. And that I think a lot of chefs look for something, you know, look for a complete change and they sidestep into something, you know, arguably much more interesting. So we saw Morris moving into the, you know, Airbnb and the RFU and and so on. Um, and Joyce is something similar in that she was, um, you know, worked in some of the, the best restaurants in the world. She was she had returned to Ireland then to uh, to work in restaurant Patrick Gibo, which I think a lot of people would be familiar with as one of one of our finest restaurants. Um, and then she um, took the very unusual career move to become the head chef in the Rotunda Hospital. And we'll pick up the story with Joyce explaining how all that happened and listen to how she transformed the food in that particular hospital in Dublin. My first job really before I went into Mitchell starting was in the Conrad Hotel. Um, and I was working in the pastry sec- section in the Conrad Hotel. And then I got an opportunity to do a stage in Le Mamour in Cat Saison. Um, so I went over and I worked for the weekend and then they offered me a job, if you can call it a job. Um, as in pay, hey, there was very little of it. Um, but yeah, I worked there for about a year, um, a year and four months. Um, and I was in the pastry kitchen under Benoit Blanc. Um, so I'm very much a home bird and I wanted to come home um, so I just said to Mr. Blanc I said um, I'm leaving I'm going home and he said well where, where is your next where are you going next what's your next restaurant and I said well I've applied for um, Patrick Gibo but um, I haven't heard back so this was I was chatting to him like walking through the courtyards just I thought no more of it and I say an hour and a half later I got a call in the kitchen to speak to me and it was Patrick Ebo on the phone oh saying God. there's a job here for whenever you want to um, start or whatever. So I left and within the month I was working in Gibo's. Um, I brilliant opportunity, um, great team. I was only really in Gibo's for a short time. Um, but my friend was the head pastry chef in the Marion Hotel. Um, and I more or less came out the back door of Gibo's at the smoking hut and went straight in the back door to the Marion Hotel where I stayed for um, two years, two and a half years or so. My friend left as the pastry chef and then I became Paul Kelly's sous chef as he was the pastry chef there. It was a brilliant uh, learning opportunity, really was. There was loads going on, lots of things going on and I settled in straight away into um, the Marion Hotel the exec sous chef, a guy called Audrey Lucy, who was there under Ed Cooney, he was going to start his own hotel, like being the exec chef in a hotel in Killarney. And he asked me when I come down as his pastry chef. So I had no ties. So I said, yeah, sure. Went down. And then about two years later, I was pregnant with Lily and I came back to Dublin. 
I was working in a restaurant called Expresso Bar. Doesn't sound very fancy. And I always said it was all the celebrities, the Irish celebrities, Eddie Rockets. So they all came into us. Um, I went in there as a pastry chef. I ended up finishing then as head chef, well, nearly manager of the whole place. Um, but it was a busy place and it, that experience was great. But Lily was at an age that I wanted to be more flexible and that, not more flexible, more stable, should I say. So I was looking for a nine to five role. So when I seen the role for the Rotunda, I applied for it. My sister had um, two babies before me and it was only around, it wasn't far from a restaurant I was working in. And she'd say, will you please just bring me up something to eat? Please bring me up whatever. And I fed her her breakfast, lunch, dinner, and that was it. And the food, I remember being in this hospital and it wasn't even in the rotunda. The rotunda didn't even have that smell before I went in. I didn't change that. But this was in a different hospital. And you know that smell of hospital food? That's what it smelled like, burnt cabbage, if cabbage can get burnt. But that's what it smelled like. You just, you know that the cabbage was there for ages and yeah. was traveling around everywhere. Um, and then when I had my child, I was like, okay, Lisa, get the food up to me quick. Um so that was it. So like part of the role for the Rotunda was I wanted something Monday to Friday, but I also wanted to see, is it possible to make a change? Because you'd be hearing these different celebrity chefs and going in saying, oh, they can do this and they can do that in hospital food. But no, nothing really changed like anywhere. So I just went in and I went in and I just did my job, if that makes sense. I just went in and worked the way I always worked as a chef. The first role for me there was to get all the, the dry stores totally emptied um, because there was a lot of tinned, tinned sauces, jars, all of that. Um, and the reason for that was that there was no consistency with the food. There was even powdered soups in it. Um, so my first thing was obviously to use them up. I wasn't going to throw them out. But I wanted to empty the stores and fill the fridge. That was my first task and simplify the kitchen as much as I could. Because I walked in with my chef hat on and I was like, um, you are just killing yourselves with this. They had menus everywhere. They had a menu for um, the private, for public, for day wards, for the canteen. Were the Rotunda thinking when they hired you, were they thinking we need to transform this system or... Were they just yeah. looking for a head chef? Or? There was a new manager there called um, Huishi. And he wasn't, I think this was his more or less first time in hospitals as well. He was there about two years before I came. And he wanted to make big changes. Um, he had made some changes of bringing that you serve the food at the ward level at different pantries. Um, but he wanted to take it up a step more. And then like his vision was to change the food in fairness. And that was where I came in. Um, so for me, I simplified, totally simplified everything. Um, I wasn't given a budget to work off in um, in the rotunda, but I was thinking I'll have to do stock take, I'll have to do this, but none of that was um, mentioned. But as a chef, you know your budgets, you know what you have to spend, you know how to spend, you know where you're going to have expensive meals, cheap meals, and how to line them up, that your budget is right. Mm. Um so we went back, like literally we went back to basics and the, the basics. And I have to say the team really wanted it as well. And that was what made it easy. 
for me. They really wanted to make this change. One of one of the one of the things that jumps out for me is like, did you have? I mean, I I suppose at a time when you're in hospital, you're you're probably most at need of nutritious, delicious food, and and yes. well, you know, depending on how unwell you have, I suppose it, it depends. But like, um, did you have a sort of? Did you have a kind of a? A, a determination i suppose that that diet could play a role in kind of health and wellness or or was it more about sort of taking what you knew from the restaurant world and applying it to a hospital situation or or a bit of both maybe well it was probably a bit of both the thing is i didn't really have sick people in the rotunda you know really um i had mammies coming in having babies and leaving their whole uh, if they had other babies and families at home and used to home cook food and go good like at the start I used to see um, dads bringing in like McDonald's or bringing in a chopped salad and I'd be like I'd be in the height of it looking at them when I was saying like seriously you don't need that here um, but my I just wanted them to be looking at the food and tasting the food and they're going to have that time for their meal on their own okay hopefully the baby's asleep or fed and in bed and everything else but I just wanted that time to be special breakfast, lunch, dinner, their snacks in between to be special, whatever they wanted, they could have like, they were very old kind of mammy salads, you know, the, yeah. the tomato, the cucumber, that kind of thing. So we introduced, um, more composite salads. So we'd have a couscous or we'd have a barley salad and um, rice salad. Um, but these were cheap, they're full of flavor and healthy. And I would think better than any chopped salad, but, you know, that came very easy and very quickly because they weren't sick. And like we got fantastic, like the guys were brilliant. They wanted to do it um, and they were enjoying doing it. But what they were getting back, they were getting back lots of feedback and we were getting emails back and we were getting, um, they have a customer care kind of survey thing. And the feedback that catering were getting was amazing. Like the food is amazing, like the staff are great, you know, so that just made them want to do it more and do it really well. And you were getting feedback from the dining room, from the staff dining room also. So they were, you know, it was a good boost for them. And it also went outside the walls of the hospital, of course, as well, because a video, yeah. a video went viral of a meal being being served. And, and the broadcaster, Louise McSharry, tweeted something about, you know, yeah, if I works. if I got this at uh, a food stall at Electric Picnic, I'd be I'd be delighted kind of thing. Like, why? Why did it? Uh, uh, there was another brilliant quote. Um, someone said, I'd be missing the pulled chicken burrito for dinner tonight because I'm going home. I'm absolutely gutted. <laughs> I just think that's brilliant. Yeah. Like, why do you think it got, why did it get so much attention? Is it just because it was, it was such I think it was because it was totally different to what hospital food was. Like we were dealing with young women. Okay, we had a gynae ward as well for older women. But the majority was young women having babies. And like they were getting pulled pork burritos. They were getting fish tacos. You know, they were getting on trend. They were getting stuff that was on trend. And yeah. that for me is important that that's the food. So I think that they weren't getting a roast and, you know, drowned in whatever gravy or drowned in cabbage water. You know, that was the thing. There was love put into it. It was yeah. garnished correctly. It was our Thai curry, I would like to think, is something that you could order from a Thai restaurant or a takeaway. You know, it was garnished. It had pickled cucumbers. It had coriander, chili, spring onions, all garnished on it. The rice was cooked with lemongrass. So 
there was a lot of work that went into each dish. Yeah. And that, like, it was for me, it was worth it. And the team loved it. And they're still doing it. So to me, that's fantastic. Two years. I think that what you said about it should be like you wanted it to be the, the food to be the highlight of the day. I think when you're in hospital, it is actually the highlight of the day because yeah. it's so bloody boring. You're, you know, the rest of the day, you're just lying there waiting. So it's, it is that that's just a brilliant approach. One, one of the things like I we, we did a panel discussion at Bloom years ago where we talked about this issue and, and like the standard sort of. I think response about why why is hospital food so bad is like people talk about central procurement and and you know it's outsourced to companies who don't care and all this kind of stuff. But that wasn't your experience. In fairness, yeah. sure it wasn't. Most hospitals and even if they're um, catered out, if a catering company are in there, they're bu- they're more than likely buying from Palace or BWG or yeah. you know there's a group there's. A, they're all listed, you know, so they're getting the same chicken in, they're getting the same beef in, they're getting the same everything in lamb in, but it's what you do with it. You don't just throw into a pot and hope for the best. Like we marinated everything. We marinated their chicken, we marinated their beef, everything for the next day was marinated. It was never yeah. cooked. It was just marinated. And then it went from there. Everything we went through kilos and kilos of onions because they were going into sauces you know it was good stuff herbs we always had fresh herbs and dried herbs but they're good as well um but yeah it was just it was bringing the food to another level and and presenting it and plating it up at it in a different way that it was garnished and everything like papadum everything prawn crackers whatever so you moved on from um from the rotunda you're in in Marymount now I think is that yeah, yeah. so I went from young women to really old women <laughs> and men so it's in age of care um yeah. and I was totally new to that um and I like I never dealt with um what's called itsy levels so they're um levels of food that a resident can eat without choking so level four is the food is pureed. So when people think of aged care, they always think, oh, a lot of them are on puree food. So, and a lot of them are on puree food. But that just, um, when I was looking at it, um, now the team I have, uh, they're absolutely brilliant. Um, but they didn't know any better at that time. But now, like, they are they're fantastic. Like, they puree up um a lasagna but they pure up in different levels and you know they puree the lasagna they puree the bolognese they puree the tomato sauce and then they build it back up into a lasagna so it's all about that the resident is not feeling anyway left out from everybody else that is eating a regular lasagna you know so that's really important the dining having dignity while they're eating is just that's my main concern that Whatever they want, if we can do it, we can do it. That it's not there can be restricted with their swallow. But so far, it's really good. Um, sometimes they go on um, if they're underweight, they would go on a supplement, and that kind of happens with um, dysphagia. So if they're not eating, you know, they're going to lose weight, obviously. So our job is to make sure that the food is fortified and that it looks really nice and. It smells amazing so that when they are being assisted with feeding, that they're smelling the food and they're tasting the food. And it's quite a tiring um, process um, for someone suffering with dysphagia to eat a meal. So I kind of put in pockets of sweets and pockets of sour, like uh, to kind of act like a a sorbet 
nearly for them to eat. Um, so it kind of gives them a little lift and be able to continue on with the meal. It sounds like the common thread for me, I think, is just, as you said, like bringing the the kind of put, putting the patient, I suppose, or the, the customer f- back at the center of the experience. And To like, me, if you're working in a Michelin star, if you're working for me in a nursing home, the client is still the client. The diner is still the diner and you give them the best, the very best you can. But not like using basic ingredients. I'm not looking for, not talking about fancy food, fancy ingredient. There's no need for it. Yeah. So how do we, I mean, presumably given how much sort of publicity and and recognition you, you you so rightly received, Joyce, like what... Has the HSC kind of taken taken notice of it? Like, what? How do you think your approach could become the norm? I've always said I, I spoke to um, oh I can't remember his name now, um, and he is head of quality in the HSC. I can't remember his name, and he rang me. Um, he emailed me. Could I sit down? Well, have a chat with us through COVID and to discuss what I did in the rotunda and how can we go about it across the board across the HSC. I did an hour long conversation with him. Um, I think that you have to get consistencies. And I keep saying, I think all the HSE hospitals should be like a McDonald's. Nothing changes. Whatever McDonald's you go to, it's the same. Yeah. And that's the way it should be in all HSC, in all hospitals. It doesn't have to be HSE, but in all hospitals. So if you're going in, you're having a chicken curry with rice, you're having the same chicken curry and rice, and it's the best chicken curry and rice, and it's across all the board. Everyone has that same curry. So everybody is on the same menu cycle, the same, it's costed, it's allergened, it's everything. So you have, you just go to whatever your computer, you pick out your recipes, it's there, it's allergened, it's costed, it's um, calories, everything is Mm. there. Presumably you'd still want within that for the chef at in each of the local hospital situations to have autonomy over where to source the ingredients and things like that. A lot of the procurement um, in hospitals have the same list of suppliers, like yeah. nearly across. So you are going to be getting them in. You are going to be getting the same ingredients in. Um, that way hospitals can't really, they can't really change from that. You know, they have to use these suppliers unless they get listed and all of that. As long as they're reputable, reputable, you know, it all has to be the same that's listed by procurement in the HSE. I think the hard thing that I find, because I go around to different hospitals now doing um, pure joy and train people on dysphagia. And I just feel that the chefs are tired. Um, I don't think they get the... um, the right encouragement from management um, in not even catering in the whole the hospital management. Yeah. And I think, I think catering are a very integral part of the hospital as a whole. I wouldn't say it's food as medicine. I'm not saying food as medicine, but it definitely helps yeah. in the recovery. But can you imagine, can you imagine how demoralizing it must, well, I'm sure you can imagine because you've worked in these, but how demoralizing it must be to work every day in a, in a kitchen environment where the common consensus is the food is absolutely dreadful. <laughs> like it must yeah. be just soul destroying as well for, for those chefs. But it's also in their power as well to change that. Yeah, true. true. You know, it really is. I don't think it's about budgets. I really don't think it's about budgets. I just yeah. think that it's a mindset of some chefs. And well, that's the way we've always done it. That's what you hear. You hear that a lot. We've always done it that way. 
change it. Don't be bored in your job anymore. Change it. You know, we could all just, I just couldn't plod along doing the same thing every day. I'd have to challenge myself in some way. So Joyce, am I right in thinking that there either are, there is already or plans to bring in an orchard and a, a veg garden into Marymount in, into the care centre? Yeah, we have, uh, we have orchards, we have plums, um, peaches, apples, pears, raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, all of that. And then we have a small garden with edible flowers up on one of the balconies. And then I have two beehives and we got, I got 35 jars of honey from our beehives and this was their first year. So we were very proud. Can can you imagine like a... A hospital system where all the food is cooked the way you're the way you're talking about have what you did with the rotunda and merriment and and even even a couple of little veg patches and things around the place it would just be such a transformative experience for patients wouldn't it oh brilliant and our guys our residents love it like they come up and they take care of all the herb garden because some of them with dementia would try and put something in their mouth so it has to be edible it has to be safe and edible so they're in raised beds. Um, so they come up and they would do, they pick some and then they come down with the activity staff and then they come down and drop the stuff down to me. They come in with bunches of rhubarb. The honey as well, like um, any, like I, we don't put the honey in for cooking. We just keep it for residents if they not feeling well or they sore throat. And I think it, it's mind over matter sometimes. Well, it's Airbnb, yeah. so they're funny. <laughs> so it's brilliant. So we're hoping for a double, a double batch of honey now next year. That is absolutely amazing. Joyce, it's such an inspiring story and it gives us all a sense, I think, of what's possible, that it doesn't have to be, you know, crap food in our hospital system. We can be nourishing people as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Joyce. And continue. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a million. So Baz, listening to to Joyce describe her work, I was struck by a thought about, um, you know, just how powerful a meal can be for someone when when they're in care and when you're in a kind of a vulnerable um, situation. I loved I loved that that line she had about, um, you know, people people kind of tweeting about uh, that they were going to, you know, they were being checked out that afternoon. They were going to miss whatever was on for for supper that night. You know, just that they were so looking forward to that food. And when you're limited in how freely you can move, and and you're cut off from family and friends, um, or you're feeling you know weak or vulnerable or down in one way or another, um, and then a meal can arrive, and it can either you know make it even worse, um, or it can pick up your spirits and um be a reminder of all the home comforts that you're missing out on. So I think and I think anybody who's spent any amount of time in hospital as well just knows because it's so boring. Like the meals are such an important part of the of the day. Um so I think we kind of like the psychological impact of a proper meal is something that we take for granted. Um and you know we're behind on connecting the dots between nutri- nutrition and health but I think we're also not fully there in terms of connecting the dots between um, psychological and physical health. So again, I think this is where the GIYers perspective really stands out because growing food is an exercise in mental well-being before anything else. You know, hopefully uh, you, you grow successfully and you get to that point where you have an abundance of, of good food and, and the physical well-being that comes with that. Um, but even if growing doesn't go to plan, the time spent outdoors, in nature, using your hands, it's all time uh, really, really well spent. Um, so we've got Tor back behind the microphone to talk to another 
Pioneer and DIYer, uh, Tor, can you tell us a little bit about Rachel Gerrard? Absolutely. So Rachel is a horticultural therapist at the National Re- Rehabilitation Hospital in Dublin. Um, a really interesting person to chat to. So in fact, she didn't start out as a um, horticultural therapist. She spent 20 years as a senior legal executive, very desk-bound job. Um, and then, you know, went into horticulture um, and really found out about the therapy side of horticulture during her training. Um, So during her chat, I found out um, what she does with patients at the rehabilitation hospital. And it was so insightful, just looking at ways that being outdoors um, has such a positive rehabilitation benefit, not only cognitively and physically, but also the emotional and social side um, of rehabilitation. Um, So she was a interesting person to chat to she's so warm and I can see that her patients would absolutely warm to her as well as I did so I hope you enjoy this chat because I certainly enjoyed chatting to her Rachel hello and welcome hello (laughs) I'm delighted that you can join us just to talk about horticulture and how food growing um, can play a role in patient rehabilitation um, and to also chat about your role as a horticultural therapist but first um, that's quite a transition from a predominantly desk-bound legal executive to what I imagine is a predominantly outdoor working environment as a horticultural therapist. Um, can you tell us a bit about what motivated that career change? Well, I was always, always interested in the garden and my parents are, um, yeah, my mother would be, was always out in the garden. My father grows vegetables and whatever. So there was always a, a background, let's say, to um gardening but um yeah I worked in the office for years I loved it it was great but I was thinking of a change as it was so I took a bit of time and uh, it was great I actually have to say I really enjoyed having the space and the time to have a think I went off on the Camino for a couple of weeks as well just you know uh, great all you need to do is get up in the morning go for a walk it was fabulous (laughs) and uh and then when I came back, I thought, right, okay, it's coming. It was July, say, and I think, right, okay, it's time to go back. I want to do. I want to go back to college. So, as luck would have it, I applied to the botanic gardens, and I got it. I went for the the uh, certificate, which was only for the year, right? So I said, well, well, let's just see how it is. Now I've all. I was really keen. I was. Del- I was absolutely thrilled when, um, you know, when it was accepted, and I found I absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, went in and within a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And then, sure, got the degree. That was great. And I thought, right, I'll finish it off. And uh, I went to Blanchestown to do the uh, the fourth year. So it became an honours degree then. And I'd say as, oh, yeah, to backtrack on how I became a horticultural therapist, um, in the final year in the Botanic Gardens, uh, one of my electives was to do um social and therapeutic horticulture and uh, I have have to say I really enjoyed that and uh, and then the following year they had they ran a a module as well in Blanchestown similarly and we did lots of workshops we worked with them level three learners and every Friday we'd you know we'd do something else we had uh, various different projects that we would run and uh, I was absolutely fascinated by it so I really it started to you know what would you say like the penny kind of dropped there I suppose that this was actually a 
something that I would be really interested in doing and that it was, you know, definitely worth exploring. And yeah. it is a branch of horticulture that isn't so well known. Um, we, we hear very much about garden design following doing a horticulture yeah. degree or maybe going into being a commercial grower. Um, but it, I mean, it is slowly starting to become more mm. widely known. Was yeah. it really through the degree that it opened your eyes to this could be a career? This is where I could take this horticulture yeah, well, it was. And uh, well, I did my, um, so I did my final year project on it as well. And that was uh, how the role of horticulture in uh, rehabilitation. But I had it from the rehabilitation of people who were, um, you know, coming off drinking drugs, basically. And um, and so I, I would work down in, um, there's a residential centre in North County, Dublin that I would, went down and I worked there with the horticulturalist. And, uh, you know, it was, it, you could see it was growing as it was. I mean, it was, it started out, you know, mainly growing food with a few chickens and ducks. But then by the, <laughs> it was like, by the end of it, they had to, like two alpacas and like pigs and goats and everything. <laughs> you know, but uh, but you could really see it had a very um, positive effect on the residents. And really it could, I mean, um, because it gave them responsibility. They'd have to get up in the morning and look after the uh, water, the plants, for starters. Uh, then look after the, the, you know, the animals. And being out in the garden in the fresh air actually got them, uh, you know, to step away from that. And they could just be, just be. Yeah. You know, instead of having to be uh, and just, you know, be focused on a task and still they could be processing what they had just been talking about, say, in group session or whatever. But they would be able to just have a bit of quiet time to tip away and uh, be with their own thoughts. Um, and, of course, then it's not just on your own. I mean, there was a lot of camaraderie as well. Like you'd actually have to learn to work together and get on, yeah. you know, <laughs> get on with the job in hand. <laughs> And was it from working with those organisations with within um, Dublin that then led you to your your current role within yeah. the National Rehabilitation Hospital? Yeah. It is a facility that provides the the rehabilitation to patients who have acquired physical or cognitive disabilities, and mainly as a result of illnesses or injuries or accidents. Can you just? Briefly describe um, what you do with pa- patients and maybe some of the results that you see. I know it's it's a broad <laughs> church there. You do you do an awful lot with these patients. Um, yeah. Maybe start with who you work with, um, other than the patients within the hospital. Right. Well, it's it's part of the you know it's an interdisciplinary team, as they say. So there are like physios and um, speech and language therapists. Um, they do it is all sorts, but I'm I'm mainly um, involved with the occupational therapy department. So uh, occupational therapy is basically, you know, using everyday things to try and rehabilitate the, the person and, uh, you know, let them realise that they can actually do everyday things. And one of which is uh, horticulture. And, um, and they, they come out with you into the garden. So there's a, there's yeah. a garden actually on the grounds. Yeah. Um, and is it a large space? Is it? That it's you've, quite you've a large there? space, actually. It's on a slope as well. So, you know, challenging. But that's, so there's, um, <laughs> which is challenging. Yeah, exactly. But also very good for practicing, you know. So, um, so 
Uh, okay, I'll describe what if you were to come out into the garden, you come out into a patio area, which is nice and flat, and there are raised beds. So there are um, raised beds along each side and two large circular raised beds, um, which would be, say, nearly up to, say, waist height or whatever. So um, so patients can come out, they can work from their chair. Um, then when there's, say, some who are practicing walking and standing, they can work um, at that height and there's no real need to be bending. Um, you know, they can stretch and reach. And uh, then there's the uh, tool shed and we have mainly hand tools there. Yeah. And um, two lovely lawnmowers, uh, which always cause great uh, sport, especially amongst the young because uh, these uh, aren't just normal lawnmowers, the kind of modern yeah. day lawnmowers. Not We're talking <laughs> kind of old school push lawnmowers, aren't they? Old school cylindrical uh, push mowers, exactly. And, uh, so and, some... and is that for a purpose? Is that, you know, to have yeah. that because it can be used for, Absolutely. you know, physical strength and, you know, stamina? You would be surprised what uh, is involved in pushing a lawnmower. Like, you know, you have to have your balance, uh, your pushing. Uh, uh, then, you know, if you're going into higher levels, it's like, you know, by uh, cutting lines in the lawn, you know, you're trying to make it all like very neat and tidy. Um, but it is, it's, it involves like physical and um, physical exercise as well for them. It's it's actually, uh, and it's, a, I have to say, it's a great vehicle for, um, you know, getting some of the younger patients going because they'd be like, uh, what's the story I'm used to a ride on or whatever, yeah. you know. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but if they look at lads, you know, uh, you're the engine. So yeah. uh, off you go. And, um, and I, I and bet then, there's a bit of, bit of competitive uh, there spark indeed, comes indeed. there. Luckily we have two. So you can get, yeah. you know, uh, it's amazing how you can get two individuals put up, set up against each other and say, right, who can cut the fat, who, you know, I want you to... Cut that area now, and uh, they'd be flying around before they even realise. You know, they have it done, and uh, it's it's great. Yeah. Um, and then, so everything. You know, so all the tools there are really thought about in terms of that they're not just a tool to work within the garden. There, how can that tool actually help with rehabilitation? Um, because there's obviously the cognitive side of things as well. It's not just about physical strength and, and balance. Um, how does the cognitive um, elements come into some of the the tasks that some of the patients might do with you. Mm. Well, um, we grow a lot of our our food and flowers from seed, so uh, even it's good for fine and and uh, gross motor skills when you're pick trying to um, like pick up seeds. Uh, and of course, they're all different sizes. You have everything from like a pea to you know down to like carrot seed or whatever, which is like pitchy and um, so it's uh, it, it, to the point of for like having to literally work out how to um, pick up the seed, how to scatter it, how to place it out, you know, uh, actually before that, putting the compost into the yeah. tray or into the six pack or whatever you're using at the time, um, mixing the compost, breaking it up, all that. I mean, um, literally from start to finish, they say, okay, even scooping up the compost, putting it out, mixing it up, maybe with perlite or vermiculite or whatever, and um, spreading it on the tray, flattening it out, you know, uh, sprinkling out your seeds, covering them over, tapping them down, watering them. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a, on the course, when you think of it, each thing is a, it's a sequence of events. So 
it helps with focusing sequencing in the cognitive sense. And then, as I say, physically trying to like pick up things and move them around and flatten them out and what have you. And something that we, many of us would just take for granted, it's just yeah. going out there and you know sowing some seeds. Um, yeah. And when you break it down, like you've just done there, it is quite mind boggling just how much goes into um, you know, planting a single tray of seeds, um, yeah. how much thinking has to go into it. Um, and as you say, the sequencing of events that go into yeah. there. Um, and I certainly know, I'd much rather be outside doing it with seeds than maybe in a in a hospital room doing it with I don't know wooden beads or whichever way yeah. that we think about rehabilitation um, and yeah. transferring it to the to the garden and to those yeah. everyday tasks um, just brings a different dimension to some tough rehabilitation that many of these patients are going through. And sometimes it has to be hand over hand, you know, and uh, because it, they may not have quite the strength or whatever. So you work with them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, each each patient is different and whatever. But it, but I suppose the good thing, as you just said about just putting beads in different things, at least, you know, when they come back the following week, maybe not the following week, but the week after, maybe there will be signs of life. And, um, you know, they're like, oh, Janie look at that and saying, yeah, look, it's coming up already. And, you know, so they're, they're, it's, um, it's a reflection of progress, isn't it? It's yeah, kind of it progress is. in their rehab and progress yeah. in the growing, yeah. which is just wonderful. Yeah. They're invested in it. You see, yeah. they, you know, they, they put in some effort and they can see results. I'm quite interested because I know um, a lot of patients will be in the NRH for its long-term care. They're not, it's not a couple of weeks. It's, it's often many weeks and circumstances for them being in there is, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad. It's not, it's not planned. So what I ask you is many of the people who come to you, do they have an interest in gardening already? Um, or is it a real mixed bag? Some have latent interest or a background and how does some potentially maybe react to being given gardening? Yeah, it's a total mixed bag. You have everything from, wait till I show you pictures of my garden at home. And, uh, and then often I like you, we, well, some, some are farmers, uh, you know, there are uh, farming accidents. Uh, it could be uh, coming off the, the tractor or, uh, you know, um, crushed by an animal or something. You know, there's all different things falling through a roof. Um, they, uh, then, you, you know, so they may have an interest and then they can get quite upset because they can't do what they used to be able to do. And I say, well, look at this is you're doing, you know, let's have a go and um, see where it takes us. And uh, often they're quite impressed. Like the way given out initially gone, oh, I would have done that in five minutes. It's not taken me the full hour or whatever. But I'd say, well, but you did it. Yeah, you know, so absolutely. Now, it's not a panacea either. I mean, uh, sometimes they people can get upset because it brings it out in the, 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 their limitations. But say, well, look, OK, let's work with what you have you know, and what we can do. And you're saying, um, and it's something that, that really struck me is about really it's about the chatting to them. It's the socialising, it's the camaraderie. So even if when they get discharged, never touch a seed or a trowel in again, the benefit of that social interaction, because rehabilitation can be quite a, a lonely thing, especially if walking up and down hospital corridors. Um, yeah. Whereas going out to the garden, sitting, chatting to you, yeah. chatting to other people. 
Yeah, there is a bit. And also you see, it's not really, it's very, it's, it's not quite the clinical environment. You know, they're, 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 it's, there is that sort of sense of being um, out behind the back of the bike shed. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they, uh, you know, there's a bit like of the, the gossip. That goes, rebel go, gang. <laughs> little, sometimes they can have a bit of like, oh, wait, I tell you, Lala. And I go, like, I'm not even listening. I'm going out today. <laughs> but there is a bit of a, it does uh, foster camaraderie between the patients. Yeah. And um, I suppose, you see, they used to be in the old the old style was where they were all in the ward. Now they have their own room. Um, but they, there are areas that they can, you know, meet and chat and whatever, but the garden is one of them. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and of course, now with, with all this, uh, the COVID thing and whatever, being outside is perfect. And then, um, uh, you know, they can be socially distanced, yapping away and... Um, yeah, it's great. So when they work, been, by the way. Yeah, when when they work, if there's too much talking, <laughs> <laughs> not so much seed sowing, get all lawn mowing gets done. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like there is um, a lot of food growing, a lot of other growing as, as well. I, I understand, but is some of the the produce that is um, grown? I understand there's some tomatoes in the in the polytunnel. Yeah. Are they used by the patients as part of their therapy yeah. as well? Um, like absolutely. by the occupational team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, t- like say the tomatoes and cucumbers are um, used, even if it's just in a sandwich, you know, in the, there's an occupational uh, therapy gar- um, kitchen. So where the patients cook their own food and, you know, whatever they're doing and uh, or baking, they can, we use the, the rhubarb, the, the gooseberries, raspberries. We have like they all go, they are all used um, and and some will actually do, we, we send some down to the canteen as well. Um, so, uh, and they're used, like the tomatoes and what have you are used in the salads. I've been speaking to the chef and he's really keen now to uh, increase uh, the food uh, coming from the garden and putting it into the actual, you know, into the staff and the patients' uh, menus. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, and because he was like, you know, definitely and, and I said to him well I'll tell you what what is it that you want uh, we'll try and grow it and then I'll tell you what what we what we grow a lot of and yeah. can use it <laughs> so, uh, so yeah that's, that's uh, brilliant this, this, so really this great link yeah between yeah. the kitchen and the and uh, like this is the actual canteen kitchen as well as the um occupational therapy kitchens where the So this is serving serving staff and visitors as as um so really if we're talking about food miles that's gonna be like yeah. nothing. That's literally oh, yeah. from from Zero. your garden. <laughs> from your garden and to organic. the canteen. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. I mean, that's yeah, this is great. Yeah. You got you got the, the full grow cookie experience happening Absolutely. at the NRH can't hospital. Get pressure than, than <laughs> from outside the door. <laughs> that's been but it's just really great to get that new thinking, you know, not only from from you working with patients but hearing the chef seeing that as an opportunity is that you're growing stuff out there let's let's bring it back into the hospital um so really from from my point of view i it's time for me to get my little personal bit in here Mm -hmm. because i i am myself an outpatient at the nrh Mm -hmm. so i have a familiarity of going through through rehab um and i know i'm also a food grower amateur though it may be um i know that over the last year for me is the without realising it going out into the garden and doing a little bit of you know weeding or, or sowing has been fantastic for my emotional well-being and 
what I'd love to do is get just from your experience of working with with patients in rehab is what advice would you perhaps give to anyone who is maybe keen to start growing or perhaps would like to get back to growing following an illness or an injury um, but perhaps are dealing with some physical or cognitive challenges um, and whether you've got some some top tips that maybe you you use with with your patients yeah well I think the first thing is just uh, set your mind to it and just say, right, let's go. Let's let's go out there now and see what we can do. Um, you can get adaptive tools where, say, if your 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 wrists are not as strong as they were, but you can actually have it where there's the tool could be velcroed on or clipped on, so you have the strength of your arm for things like weeding or whatever. Um, long handled tools. I mean, they don't even have to be specifically, you know, uh, adapted, but to, but long handled things. Um, and you can literally, you can a bit of velcro clipped around it would really be of assistance. <laughs> I think as well, if you just go out and look at what your space is like, um, if the beds are all uh, low down, you absolutely get raised beds. It makes life a lot easier, even for like even for me. I'm thinking in the future, I don't want to be down necessarily on my hands and knees. I, I think I'd, I'd rather be up on a nice level where I could nice height that I can work from um, in comfort. Um a little bit of changing around. You, you, you may not need all that grass. <laughs> you may not need. Uh, and also manicured gardens are gone out of fashion. <laughs> so you could. Absolutely. Act, weeds weeds uh, are good. You, weeds are good. We, like dandelions are our friends. You know, like, yeah. so you could just say, right, you know what? I'm going to let that go and turn it into a wild meadow or whatever. Um area and uh, leave part of the garden to go a bit wild and uh, they only have to cut it once a year like it'd be grand absolutely <laughs> and I suppose but, also it's, it's thinking about the if you're wanting to grow food is is yes, food. manageable yeah. food so perhaps you know you've got those you know things like brassicas or, or sweet corn which are take up huge spaces and are, get quite tall is to think about the the, the plants or the the veg which um can grow just pop to mind was you know dwarf french mm-hmm. beans that can be done in containers absolutely um, you know, and absolutely containers beans, are great it's yeah. ama- you, you can it's, it's amazing how you know you can just Use what's around you, like, uh, I mean, old bins, catering tubs and things like that. All of these things can be used. Put up on a nice, uh, on a shelf. You can grow, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have your 40 acres. You can have, you can grow quite a lot in a, quite a small space. Um, it's not that square foot gardening, is there? You yeah. could do that, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bulky so, gardening, um, container gardening. Uh, this that's is... it, exactly. And grow, like, uh, yeah, as I say, Brassicas can be very big. When we think the space, great, but you know, but uh, but grow things you like, yet you like to eat <laughs> yeah. because uh, there's no point in growing something you go, oh, I'll never eat that. So th- th- think about what's in your diet, what you like to eat, and what you what you would like to eat. <laughs> um, and you're going to have it that one year. Uh, you'll have a, a something would work really well, and something and for some reason the following year it doesn't work at all. But you're 
it's all part of the it's all part of the tapestry. <laughs> absolutely, like, absolutely. And I, I mean, I certainly know just chatting to you here. Um, just mm-hmm. I can imagine just what great stuff you do with the, the patients that come to you and the fun that you have. Um, there's no denying. I'm sure there's some some challenging yeah. moments. Um, I can I can certainly oh, yeah. appreciate that. Um, but there is but a, you, there's you a lightness your, and fun. You're just you're right in saying though. That's the thing. You see, it's it's it is rehabilitative, but also you just said it there. There's fun. I mean, you have to uh, think, you know, people have had a really rough time and um, you're just trying to inject a bit of fun back into their life. And yes, they're there to, you know, and it's all very serious. They're going to be doing their rehabilitation or whatever. But there's the lighter side as well, where, you, you know, as I say, the camaraderie, having a bit of fun, getting things off their chest while they're working away and like, you know, um, enjoying the fresh air and, um, and the, as I say, when they're invested in it and they see that, you know, there's a little tiny seedling and it's growing and it's a pea plant. There we go. It's going to produce seed. It's going to produce peas. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's fabulous. And it is taking you, you said it then back at you there, is that just being outside as well. Um, and you yeah. forget, I, you know, historically so much of rehabilitation within a hospital setting is indoors. It's it's in that clinical setting. Yeah. Um, and it's wonderful to hear that we're moving forward and having these opportunities to do similar rehabilitation, but within the outdoors. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. I just thoroughly enjoyed our chat and just providing this insight into, you know, not just gardening, but food growing and and what a a role it can play in rehabilitation. Um, So thank you. And we will be checking in. I might see you when I'm up at the National Rehab. Absolutely. um, Yeah, great. I'll I'll come to hello. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so, so much. And we will be in touch. Good luck now. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was a deadly interview, Baz, and I was lucky enough to to visit that garden a couple of years ago in the in the rehab hospital in Dunleary, and it's a it's a it's an absolutely shining example, I think, of of um, uh, preventative medicine and and growing being used as a form of of therapy. Um, in hospital settings and of course in GIY we've seen it um, through the work we did with horticulture therapy over the years um, in different settings like prisons and um, various other other settings where it can have a similar kind of um, therapeutic uh, effect. Um, so I think listening to Rachel I think you could kind of make the argument that that food growing holds kind of stronger potential than than the food itself you know if that makes sense like from a from a preventative perspective um you're talking about a skill to help you really understand food and get the food empathy we speak about a lot um you're also kind of creating a more active and outdoor lifestyle but then as a therapy itself and i mean i think i think we use the expression a lot of getting out of your head and into your hands and i think that's that's what happens. Like I, I notice sometimes when I start a job, say weeding around leaks or something, and you're kind of there with the hoe, with the hoe or with a hand trowel or whatever, and you can hear your mind kind of churning and saying, you know, this is crap. I, I don't like this doing this. There's so much to do. Why did you let the weeds get so bad? And then eventually, if you if you persist with it, with like mindfully doing it. 
um, the mind starts to quieten down and, and just shut up, which is what you wanted to do. Um, and you get space and you find, oh, Jesus, I've been doing this for 10 minutes and I haven't had a single thought. And, you know, it just gives you that gap of 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 no mind, which is like such a break, you know, from the incessant kind of churn in your head. Um, and then you head back up to the house and you're kind of you're feeling calm and relaxed. And that's that's why it's so therapeutic, you know, on top of the fresh air and the, all of the other things. So I think it takes me back a bit to, to that first episode um, where we looked at food done right at home. And, you know, that idea that the more that people grow and connect with food as part of of everything we do, you know, make a part of your everyday life. Um, hopefully the more we'll stay out of the hospital system altogether. Um, and if and if we do fall sick, we get be- be- get better quicker. And hopefully if we do have to go into hospital, that the food will be a bit better than it currently is. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think weeding must be the perfect metaphor for healing. You know, you're talking about all the stress and chaos building up all around you, and then by the time you're done, it's it's you know, calm personified. Um, so definitely yeah. something something to bear in mind. So Tor, we all need a little bit of therapy in our lives. Uh, what tips do you have for anyone uh, who wants to kind of take on some of those those lessons to uh, you know to, to make a difference in their daily life? Absolutely. And, you know, listening to, to Rachel and what she does with her pa- um, patients um, certainly opens my eyes to um, to what I can do, what we, we can all do. I'm a huge proponent of outdoor therapy um, and have been for, for many, many years. I found a, a massive benefit myself um, just to a lot of emotional well-being. Um, and it's actually in the last few years I've been very interested in this idea of forest bathing, um, which was was um, a concept that came about in the, the late 80s in Japan. Uh, so if you want to get technical, it's known as Shinrin Yoku over in Japan. Nice. Um, and it's got loads of scientific research behind it. It's had a lot of attention in the Western media in the last couple of years. Um, and it's a really, really simple concept. But more than anything, what I, what I love about it is it's actually standard preventative medical care in Japan is to head into the forest and get reap the benefits of it. Um, so it's not so much just hugging trees. You don't just go in and hug a tree. Um, but what you're doing is you're using your five senses. It's, a, it's an incredibly simple concept. You're using your your eyes, your ears, your nose, your the taste and just the sounds that you hear around you. Um, so when I first found out about it, I, I did give it a go. I will be honest. I didn't have the, uh, the wild forests of Japan to go to. Um, in truth, it was a small pine forest in Northwest England that I went to. Um, it had added squirrels, which probably helped. Very nice. But I, I was a little bit skeptical about um, how this was gonna gonna work. But there is something about being amongst trees that really um, is a very calming effect on you. Whether you're just going for a walk in the trees, um, and I came I came away from it and realised that I could bring that into into all of my life, whether it's a walk along the coast, whether it's heading out into my garden. Um, and what do you hear outside in in nature? You've got the sounds of the birds. And I know I find that an incredibly 
incredibly calming sound, um, especially over the summer months. Um, you've got your, you know, the feel. You can you can head in. You can feel the leaves. You can feel the soil. Uh, we want to get our hands dirty and, and feel that soil. Um, you've got the smells around you. Nature smells. You've got all sorts of smells out there um, at different times of the years. Um, and then you've just got that, you know, the 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 vision, just the the view outside. You're looking out at the sea. You're looking at the the coastline. That can be an incredibly calming thing. Um, but probably something that links more to food growing is the taste. You can look at. I know growing my own food and getting a chance to taste it um, certainly makes me feel good. Um, but even if you're out um, in the September months and you're foraging and you've got the blackberries out there and you're, you're you know, sneaking a few tastes of them, the birds love them. We love them too. Um, so all of that um, from a from a set, like feeling point of view, but there's science behind it as well. And I think that's what really um, made me get very attached to it is that it's not just me standing here saying, yes, go out and hug a tree. It makes you feel good. Um, there's been a huge amount of scientific research that means that a lot of these things that you do can calm your nervous um, system. So your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the relaxing side of things. Um, and the reason that the forest is such a huge part of it is actually there's a there's a smell that trees can emit and it's that smell um that can reduce the the cortisol levels that stress response um in your body um so i certainly know that if i go outside it makes me feel better i've got personal experience about it and i certainly know going out and you know picking a strawberry standing there and eating it the taste certainly makes me feel a lot better and I'm so proud that I've grown it myself as well Nice tour, I'm more relaxed just listening to you describe it and a, a little bit hungry as well um, uh, Thank you so much <laughs> No problem And that's a wrap. We've gone on as far a journey as we could manage over the six episodes in the series, trying to figure out how food can be done right throughout different phases of life. Mick, anything stand out for you? Any deeply complex problems solved? Um, <laughs> so much stands out for me, Baz. I think I think it, in fairness, it's been a, a rollicking ride through like, you know, all of the different um touch points for food in all aspects of our lives really so I don't think you could as you say it's ambitious kind of a plan for six episodes of a podcast um I think like the common th kind of thread for me um was the question of like how big a priority food is in different aspects of our lives I think oftentimes it gets relegated to something sort of secondary um or you know transactional um, or something we just don't really care about all that much. And it, and it's like just a sort of mindless activity, um, particularly when it comes to food at work or in care settings or in the school system or whatever. Um, and I think I think that's the the point here, I guess, is that we're going to need to care a much, much more. Um, and I think, you know, we've tried to be very positive throughout this, as as you should be, I think. But I think you have to sort of be honest as well and say that what what we've done I guess is shine a light on some corners of the food system where the where the system is pretty crap all in all and you know I think I think um 
one of the standout moments for me is Roger Roger Dwaran's point about the subversive plot, you know, and like I think we we need we don't we don't have to be part of a system that we know to be crap. We we can make a a different choice and do something different and and stand out a bit and be proud to stand out a bit and and do something ourselves which is good for 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 our own health and for the health of the planet and develop that that food empathy and food empathy is a kind of it's a soft enough kind of a phrase so i think i think there's something something really valuable in what what the the sort of approach that Roger talks about because i think food growing is subversive and it is a <clears throat> taking an action that's that's deeply kind of transformational and um hopefully we've encouraged lots of people to to care more deeply about what we eat and and um get their own subversive plot going in time as well exactly so if you want food done right grow it yourself and try to re- reclaim some of that power um you know back from uh, from other forces so thank you all so much for listening to this first foray into podcasting for us and we we do hope you enjoyed it we'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for future series uh, you can get in touch by email at hi at giy.ie or message us on any of our social channels And don't forget, you can shop for all your growing needs on uh, GIY.ie, including our brand new range of subscriptions, which we're really, really proud of to make sure you get just what you need to sow and grow at the various times of the year. And don't forget, we are a social enterprise, which means that all surpluses um, that we make are reinvested into our mission to help people grow their own food at home, in schools, in workplaces and in the community. Um, I want to say a big uh, thanks again to Rethink and uh, the Community Foundation for Ireland, without whom we could not have made this podcast. And hopefully we'll be back for another series uh, very soon. Until next time, happy growing. Thanks, Mick. It's been a pleasure.